2: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: I, I think that sounds like a, a, the kind of novel that you might write late in life. Jane Garvey's first novel, Blossom in the Album <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a winner. Oh, dear. So we've just done quite a disturbing interview, haven't we?
3: Can I just have a cashew?
1: Oh, of course, yeah. Um,
3: we're having some nuts this week on Off Air. It's Nut Week. No, it, it isn't. We've just, is. got, we've just got a top of nuts.
1: Um, we
3: have done a disturbing interview with... Well, perhaps some of our American listeners can help us out here. What do you think?
1: Yeah, so it's with this guy who runs a firearms uh, company and shop, makes guns in Kansas, and he was telling us about his new user authentication gun where there's it's kind of radio-controlled, the safety catch on it, so it will only fire if it connects with the ring that you're wearing and they send each other a vibe in right. between the two of them. And, and the
3: idea is this will prevent?
1: Uh, accidental use of the gun. In particular, kiddies playing with guns and shooting each other. Oh, God. Because the, uh, that's the most common cause of death in America uh, for children and teens is guns, which I just had no idea actually, it was that bad and it's just very difficult to understand the pro-gun lobby and I don't want our inbox to be absolutely inundated uh, with you know, people trying to have a thoughtful discussion about it actually, I, I know it's one of those arguments Jane where it doesn't matter what anybody ever says to me about it I know I'm not going to change my mind No Am I allowed to say that? Well, that's perfectly alright
3: Yeah. Um, we don't understand the gun lobby just don't. But that's. It's all. It's the. Is it the First Amendment in America,
1: the right to bear arms? Is that the
3: first one or the second? The second one is the one about free speech, or is that the first? I'm. I confess, I'm showing my ignorance here. I don't know.
1: So what's the right silence? Fifth Amendment. That's the fifth. Yeah. So That's the first. You can plead right the fifth. Arms. The, yeah. the, the so right. So it's the arms. first thing they put down. Yeah. Was that okay? But you can understand that back in the day. Yeah. When uh, you know you, well, for. Start you were an invading force there is that <laughs> that's in mind um and guns just were more accepted. We've just come to a different place, haven't we
3: well every also i I don't know enough about American states having different laws and and some more or less outlaw weapons, don't they, and others have almost a, everybody's got
1: one open carry yeah that's open carry i mean called, i so. I
3: remember one of my daughter's friends going on a Gap Year to Phoenix as part of her British University course. And, you know, just popping out for a loaf and encountering people with guns in the supermarket,
1: which to you know, if you've grown up in, in Acton, it's, it's quite it's quite a surprise. Uh, so this is our ignorance here. The First Amendment provides that Congress make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting its free exercise. It protects freedom of speech so the second amendment gives citizens the right to bear arms Okay. Right, so well, forgive our lack of knowledge at least we knew we were ignorant of the, of the amendments well, that's something, isn't it? anyway um, I just wanted to, uh, just wanted to say it just left a, bit, a slightly bad taste in my mouth actually and, there's, and of course we should always talk about these things there's no point in just saying oh I don't like that topic so we're not going to interview somebody about it but Tom seemed lovely he said that him and his wife they didn't have a handgun in the house when their kiddies were young you know he probably would regard himself as a family man and a successful businessman and a decent human being just still don't understand it Tom. no
3: no we just don't no
1: but we're here to talk about stuffing animals <laughs> we, we are which we don't really understand either <laughs>
3: we, we we can enjoy i mean uh, sad otter is the winner i think do you oh. want to do you want to explain sad otter
1: sad otter let me just get sad otter so if you want to take a look at our instagram uh, it's just jane and fee on the instagram and we've put up some pictures and uh, this one, here we go. Yvette in Melbourne. Why have I said it like that? I don't
3: know. <laughs> it sounded like she was love lawn. <laughs> and desperate,
1: and she'd written in with a problem. Far from it. She hasn't got any problems. OK, Yvette in Melbourne. Uh, your discussion of taxidermy is not complete without you knowing about Sad Otter, a sadly missed exhibit at Melbourne Museum. I've given you both varieties there. In 2021, while we were all tucked up in another lockdown, the museum announced they had good news and bad news. The good news, we were getting a triceratops and losing our wild exhibition. Packed with stuffed animals from around the world, it contained everything, including the extinct thylacine, also known as the Tasmanian tiger. Cute, awkward conversations with children. But it was sad otter who everyone was sad to lose. A famous example of bad taxidermy. I hope you can open this link. Well, we were quite sad that we could because... (laughs) Because... Sad Otter is extraordinary, and Jane and I were saying, Yvette, that we just really hope that he was happy in life. Yes, I mean, I really hope so. You know, uh, everybody uh, whose fate it is to be stuffed and put in a museum is bound to be a bit sad, uh, but we we hope that there was maybe a picture of him being a bit happier in real life. But he's quite something. Well, his expression now is well. <laughs> you
3: know, I tell you what, he reminds me of. He reminds me of a child. Um, in a school photo in early, in the early years of primary school.
1: Who's <laughs> not having a good Who's not Wednesday. having a good
3: day. Who's possibly got gravy on their white polo shirt and has been, to their surprise, called in to have a photograph taken, which their mother will treasure forever and put in a frame. <laughs> but that's the sort of expression that Sad Otter is wearing.
1: I think the museum was unwise to lose that exhibit because well, I can imagine that would just become a part of everyone's childhood once seen, never forgotten. I think, I think you're right. <laughs> um,
3: keep your... Bad taxidermy coming. Um, Fee read out a really good one on the radio show, which I think we should read out again, actually, because that was very good. But just while we're looking for that, when I say we, I mean her, uh, a quickie. uh, My mum Iris was 80 on Thursday, the 3rd of August, and she listens to your podcast. She would love a shout out on the next pod, please, says Ben. Iris, I hope you had a cracking 80th on the 3rd, and uh, I'm very glad to have um, you amongst our listeners. It's good to have you along. Hope you're getting
1: something out of it. I left that one in the studio. I might have thrown it away. Oh, well, I've got it. Don't worry. I just
3: also want to mention Sinead. I just wanted to say a thank you. She says, I'm a 46-year-old. I've never smoked. I've just been diagnosed with lung cancer. And I'm discovering it's a cancer with a stigma. So I'm currently having an all-inclusive holiday in hospital in Blackpool. And I'm choosing to take you with me as I recover, recover from a, I hope I get this right, a lobectomy. Um, Your company is hitting the right note during my long hours of recovery. Um, Sinead, I'm delighted that we're helping just a little bit. And I'm sorry. First of all, I'm sorry that you're ill. I'm sorry that you're in hospital. And I'm very sorry that you're discovering that lung cancer has a stigma. Um, I'd like to hear more about that. So, if you're well enough, just send us another email to Jane and Fee at Times dot Radio.
1: Well, I think it's just a terrible assumption that uh, it's slightly on you because you've smoked. But I think lung course, cancer so when right. you yeah. haven't smoked is one of the most unfair hands of fate uh, to come at you because yeah. you know. Uh, I would imagine a lot of other people on the ward have smoked, and yeah. you'll be thinking, mm, "Why me?" Uh, So, yes, all the best from us, Sinead. And, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, do correspond with us. Uh, throughout your time in recovery, because it would be nice to hear how you go.
3: I found the taxidermy one. Oh, brilliant, it, you did. Can I? Yes, please do. Okay, Dear Jane and Fee, my dad once stumbled upon a dead tawny owl in a forest, the new forest, in fact. Quite apart from being dead, it was a fine specimen, no sign at all of old age or injury. So dad got in touch with the Forestry Commission, who, having given it the once-over for signs of poisoning, said it was his to keep What a happy coincidence. At the time, Dad was friends with a PhD student who was also a novice taxidermist, keen to take on a project. However, he just had to finish his PhD. This meant the owl had to go somewhere, so it went to live in our chest freezer, wrapped in a plastic bag for about three years. Our chest freezer was always packed with loaves of bread and joints. My mum was, and still is, a sucker for a yellow label from the supermarket. My siblings and I lived in fear of being asked to retrieve something from it. More than once, I pulled out the dead frozen owl, mistaking it for a loaf of wholemeal bread. The PhD did eventually get finished and the owl was duly stuffed. Despite loud complaints from me and my siblings, it then lived on for some time on our piano and wings spread would look menacingly at us as we practised our scales. Faced with mutinous children, Dad, then a vicar in Southampton, put the owl at the top of his spire to scare off the pigeons. To our knowledge, it is still there well. If you're anywhere near that parish church in Southampton and you are still aware of the stuffed owl doing its best to scare off the pigeons you can let us know. Jane and Fee at times.radio. Um, big chest freezers full of stuff. I mean they were a thing weren't they? Weren't they just? They really were. And um, you
1: see them they only ever crop up in crime drama now. Well that's
3: it. I completely <laughs> associate them with one thing and one thing only. There's
1: a body in the I chest say, freezer. I was
3: going to start that Annika show but if you're telling me now that she talks to the camera I'm not sure now. I'm really not. So
1: this is Nicola Walker's latest. Crime yeah, and I really vehicle. like Nicola Walker. Yeah, she is amazing. But blimey, she's played coppers, hasn't she? Oh, she has. Because... I mean, I think she could just probably just serve <laughs> I think she if, if called upon. She'd certainly know quite a lot of the rights of prisoners arrested in the middle of a night in a small market town. <laughs> Can you repeat? She?
3: You know the thing they say
1: um, when they arrest someone. Can you do
3: it word oh, for word?
1: The whatever you say will be taken down in, in, in evidence. evidence. It may be used against you. But anything you. No, you see, I can't. Anything you don't say, but you choose to rely on in court. You later choose to rely Lying
3: on in court. court.
1: No, you see, we can't do it. We can't it. do it. So
3: we, we actually aren't, despite watching every crime
1: show on television, neither of us are actually qualified coppers. No. No. Uh, but one day we are going to try and launch ourselves as two incredibly diligent, uh, very dull detectives with no hint of a bad family background. No or any addiction issues or any Nothing. darkness lurking in our past. No. And we'll be the type of coppers that if we're on a car chase in our small market town and we clip somebody's wing mirror, we're going to stop and leave a note on their windscreen. We'll,
3: we'll, uh, we'll unfortunately leave the people we're pursuing
1: because we will stop to we leave will a note. We stop. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and that's our kind of cop show. Uh, this one comes from Juliet, uh, who says that she used to work at an auctioneer's and would regularly find herself confronted with some poor taxidermy creature while wandering the office. See, attached half giraffe. Yeah, that's I mean that's example. it's the half giraffe
3: is by some mar- I mean, I sad otter is both sad but also quite funny. But half a giraffe is just chilling.
1: It is because uh, I mean it, it just it just shouldn't it just shouldn't have been halved. No, um, and Juliet goes on to say, my favourite, however, is this angel wolf, which I came across in Paris earlier this year in the window of a restaurant, uh, and it's a really. And it's extraordinary. So, I mean, it is a stuffed wolf to which have been attached some presumably real feathers uh, to give this kind of um, portmanteau of a... Of an animal, and um, may I say it's quite French.
3: <laughs> it's well. And speaking of French, here's an email, DJ uh, Duffy. When a listener clipped another motorist's wing mirror while driving in France, the motorist exclaimed la. Jane found this unbelievable. Some British people seem to think that la is a jokey "wink, wink, nudge, nudge" expression, but in French, it's not. It's an exclamation of dismay, possibly of exasperation and incredulity possibly of sympathy, depending on the context. I have lived in France for more than half my life. I've often heard it and I've said it. Actually, it was a rather mild reaction by the French motorist who might well have said something stronger, such as, no, I am not going to give examples. That's from Janet, who is somewhere in France, but she doesn't tell us exactly where. I'd like more from you, Janet. I want to know more about your life in France. Uh, And actually, there is another one on the same subject, berating me for finding ooh-la-la Faintly ridiculous, when in fact it is merely an expression of mild shock, and indeed, as Janet says, can be sympathy as well.
1: Yes, somebody had done quite a um, quite a long interpretation, hadn't they, in different languages see. of what ulala might be. I keep going past the half a giraffe. Uh, Very unsettling. It is unsettling. Uh, Do take a look on Instagram uh, where you can find all of the pictures of what we're talking about because uh, you do need to see them, actually. And a lot of people say this is the stuff of nightmares, uh, but there's also, in some of the instances, uh, there's something quite comical uh, about them. Is it a kind thing to do, to stuff an animal? I mean, if they've had a natural death, there's nothing horrible going on there, is there? Should I add this to my list of things to feel bad about? Is what I'm asking.
3: I think we can probably park this as something to feel bad about. Okay. I mean, I think it's very much. I mean, everybody. What we choose to keep in our houses, it's very personal, isn't it? Yes. Um, I mean, as I've got older, I've become, you know, really keen on cushions. I mean, I. I, But I wasn't remotely interested. 30, 40 years ago. And I do like jugs and vases. I just do. I like so you throws. you think you might come to like a stuffed So I'm Dora. wondering whether a stuffed tabby cat might actually be something i yeah. give house room to further down the line.
1: Well, no, you're right to think that way. I don't... I mean, there was a moment when I did think, should I have Pinky Ponks stuffed? Because he was our all-time favourite pet. And actually, yeah. I left him a little bit too long in oh, the front
3: room. Right. So... What do you mean? Sorry, after
1: death? Yes. So oh he dear. was. So there was a sense about him. I thought, well, I could keep, you know, I mean, he's like that. He's very stiff as a board. Uh, so I could have him stuffed and we could always have him curled up like that. Oh, yeah, right, OK. But I, I decided yeah. not to. And okay. and obviously, uh, Brian and she's been renamed. So Barbara has now become Babra Kadabra. What <laughs> a weird household you <laughs> run. <laughs> They're too young to think about it. Last one for the moment uh, f- comes from Wisconsin, from Denise. When you were talking about... She's at the Creamery, isn't she? She is at Highfield Farm Creamery. What a memory. What a memory you've got. Never forget a listener. When you were talking about taxidermy today, I was reminded of a story my mother told me. She and my dad visited old friends, and when they got in the car to leave, my dad said, now, they have the kind of well-behaved dog I wouldn't mind having. (laughs) It must have been a very high-quality taxidermy job as my exasperated mother had to say, oh, Edward, their dog died three years ago. They had him stuffed.
3: Well, I mean, Dora's behaviour is off the scale in terms of appallingness. So perhaps when she's stuffed, she will be better value all
1: round. Well, can I just say that if you do stuff Dora, I think you would would have to do the world a favour and stuff her in an authentic pose... Uh, so you can't stuff her looking absolutely wonderful and meek and mild and as if she's just halfway through no, a No no she'd have to be leaping up at somebody. Yes. Yeah no with, no with we're... fangs out claws absolutely.
3: ready to go. She was involved in a, a scuffle and there's nothing I didn't see anything but I could just several bushes shook in the back garden by the easy grass yesterday afternoon. Um and you know that unmistakable sound of a cat fight. <laughs> Yes, yeah, it's just so peculiar, isn't it? It's yeah. otherworldly altogether. And then uh, several minutes passed and she just strutted back into the house, having, I mean, potentially, possibly killed a butterfly. I don't think there was any more to it than that because I don't think she'd take on another moggy. But it did sound like she might have done. I'd go and check the bushes. What for a dead cat? Yeah. Which I could stop the sea. Oh, no, I can't tonight because I'm going to see, go see Barbie. We'll yeah. oh,
1: okay, We talk about Barbie. We must talk about Greg Wallace's Mincemeat Monday or whatever. <laughs>
3: I just want to say hello to Judy. Um, She's emailing us from a road trip in Uganda, from the capital Kampala to the beautiful western part of the country. Now, that sounds absolutely fascinating. I would love to know more about Uganda. Uh, Do email back, Judy, with just more about the country and what you've seen. I find it absolutely fascinating. Um, She she says, the recent talk about family holidays has made me laugh quite hard. I'm in a car right now. I'm whispering for effect with a loud and passionate brother-in-law. I am bracing myself for the four-day road trip, but I am enjoying time with my wider family. Congratulations. Can I say, I like my brother-in-law. I don't have an issue with him at all.
1: So you'll be all right it's on a long
3: sister. road trip. It's my sister.
1: Oh, <laughs> your poor sister. Oh, she I know I'm going to Like I know, I'm going to extend the hand, the warm hand of younger sister friendship to Alison. She doesn't need it. Yeah, I think she does. I no. think Alison and I could have a very, very long lunch. There she's may be booze f- no, involved. No, she's fine. No, no. Nope. I think we've got things to talk about. Uh, Dear Jane and Fee, I'm saying that because it's got double E on it. Mm. I'm not economically active, but just over 12 months ago, husband and father to our children and myself made the decision to move from rural Worcestershire to Hertfordshire, To support our daughter, 32 years old, returning to work as a GP trainee after the birth of her son and her husband, who's a corporate lawyer. They had to downsize and have a mortgage again because the husband's planned retirement is on hold. Should I go out to work or support daughter with two days a week of childcare and be there for the pick up the days when the nursery are sending the child home poorly, etc.? And also supporting my elderly parents, 86 and 87, and my uncle, 94, and a two and a half hour journey each yeah. way at least once a week. And there's your problem. When am I meant to work? Yeah. So, this is uh, all of the stuff about the government trying to get economically inactive over 55s back to work. Mm. And there are just story after story after story of why people can't work. Yeah. It's just but also, not a choice. Our correspondent is working. Yes. She's doing a whole load of stuff. She's doing all of the work that you can't get anyone else to do. do. Or you'd
3: feel happier if you did it rather than outsourcing it to somebody else. And that, by the way, is no criticism whatsoever of people who employ people outside the family to look after their kids. It's something I did myself. And so I'm not knocking that. But, um, yeah, I've got a a real issue with this. It's not an attractive phrase, the economically inactive. And, of course, there are some people who are just bone idle but but they are in a, they are a vanishing minority of folk i would suggest yeah I would um they agree. they really are
1: um sorry uh, just to um there are a couple of bit, bits missing here uh so just to say that the anonymous correspondent it 's them who had to downsize. And husband's planned retirement on hold, not her daughter's. Yeah,
3: because her daughter's the trainee GPS. Yes, yeah. yeah. I just wanted to make sure everyone. Yeah, got no, that. no, I oh, know. I think I think they have. But I think um you get to a certain age and your caring responsibilities not well, in every case, but they can come at you from every angle, can't they? Oh um, definitely.
1: And the thing also with having a ninety four year old uncle and an eighty six and an eighty seven year old set of parents is that time is finite, isn't it? <laughs> yeah oh yeah so the you know you you've got to look after them now because let's be honest about it in 10 years time it's not probably a decision you're going to have to be making so you are forced into it your hands are tied behind your back on something like that
3: you do say that but my mum and dad who i've mentioned before are in sheltered housing went to a party there on saturday night i went to see them on saturday but they needed me to get out quite quickly because they were moving on to a function so i left reasonably early Don't get me started on Avanti West. And um, they went to a party and the oldest resident uh, went along to the party, left at the same time as my parents, which is absolutely at the end of the party. This lady is 107.
1: Whoa. And she
3: is still going out, still enjoying herself. Whoa. She's a phenomenal woman, actually. I've met her and she is just sparky and takes an interest in other people and just goes to stuff. She, yeah. just, she
1: does things well do you know what lots of people say that that is one of the secrets to a very long life is to not be interested in yourself but just to have a constant yeah. curiosity I don't know how I'm going to manage <laughs> <laughs> so,
3: I mean when I don't when I'm so inflexible I can't will, gaze will, at my own navel what am I going to do will you make 60 I don't know <laughs> that's, no, that's me
1: It's only a couple of months I'm oh, sorry I don't mean that at all. Advance warning, 10 a.m., 13th of August, 2023. Yes. What What is it? Oh, God. It's nothing to do with penny farthings, is it? Yep. So, this is the last, last mention of penny farthings. I just have no
3: idea. have an end to this, I think, now.
1: It's got to be a joke, though. What is it? So, the sign says, World Championship Penny Farthing Hill Climb Time Trial. God. No, Beachy Head. Oh, please. It's got
3: to be a joke. I think it must be a joke. Please be safe if you are doing that.
1: Yes, but then there's but then there's a Facebook site and there's a oh well can maybe see a picture it's picture of a bloke on the beach. He had world championship penny farthing hill climb TT weekend 2023. Best wishes, Melissa. I don't know. Good lord. Enough. Enough.
3: Okay, Um Our big guest is Pat Nevin, uh, who is a former male professional footballer. Uh, we should say congratulations to England. Who I have to say, scraped through to the quarterfinals of the Women's World Cup. And congratulations to Nigeria, who played so well and really, in truth, deserved to win today. But anyway, uh, let's hear from Pat Nevin. He is 59 now. He was a brilliant winger. He was a player at clubs, including uh, in England, uh, Chelsea, Everton and Tranmere Rovers. But he played for a number of big Scottish clubs as well. Um, now, he was always something of an outsider. He was a big fan of music, a DJ, an intellectual, the person responsible for introducing great so, to his favourite newspaper, The Guardian. Uh, now Pat is a writer and a pundit, and his latest book is called Football and How to Survive It. Now, in a previous book, he'd said that football was an unimportant but joyous thing, and I asked him exactly what he meant by that.
4: Well, first of all, it's unimportant and joyous, but for me, for other people, it may be something else. But I absolutely wanted to keep that feeling because I played for the pure love of it, and I've got this kind of concept, and I've always had it since a kid that if you're doing something that you're loving doing particularly if it's a creative thing you'll be better at it if you're doing a creative thing through fear or worry you're going to be too stiff to do it you know and that means your mind as well so i always wanted to hold on to that and i did you know it took a long time you know to try to explain it to the football world in those days they weren't so open to ideals like that um but yeah it is and continue to be joyous but with the name of the second book you can tell it was a wee bit of a struggle sometimes well
3: it's called pat nevin football and how to survive it i think for people who are if you like civilians to football they Mm. might not realize how much of an unlikely professional player you were so can you just explain (laughs) that you were a bit of an outsider
4: uh, well, very much. Uh, I suppose a good line is, I tried really hard not to be a professional footballer and failed, which is like an unusual <laughs> position yeah. to take. And it's not that I don't love the game of or playing the game, but everything else around it really didn't appeal to me. The fame, um, all the stuff that, that, that the people seem to love about it that I find a bit superficial. So I never had any time, passion, interest in that. And I thought if I become a footballer and don't do something sensible like finish the degree I was doing, then I may get dragged into this. So I I fought against it for a year or two and then thought, no, I'll have a go, but I'll always continue to be myself. So whatever my interests are, I will continue to have them. So if I want to go out to London and go to, you know, be at the ballet, be at some indie band that no one's ever heard of or reading serious literature... You know, if the boys want to wind me up, they can wind me up. I'm going to be me. And, and did
3: they wind you up?
4: They tried, yeah. They're wasting their time, like, because <laughs> I was quite confident in myself. Um, You know, I come from that kind of Glaswegian kind of autodidact background where it's okay, we don't, it's, there's no inverted snobbery, you know, involved in us, no snobbery involved in us. Like, we want to better ourselves yeah. in any way possible. Um So anyone who can is snide about that, I've done, i'm not i'm just shrugging my shoulders you yeah. i think the problem's yours i mean having said that if you stand up and that's the, a big part of the first book was this thing of look it's okay to be an outsider and there's i'm not a tub thumper these days um, but this the message is there all the way through it you can be an outsider if you're strong in what you believe and what you stand up for i mean a classic example was back in the time when i was at Chelsea early on you know i was one of the nicknames was Weirdo, right? I took that as a compliment slightly, but what I always understood was I'm normal. You lot are all weird. That's how I took it. And if you look at the way we look at life now, particularly the way we look at the sort of the racism that within within in the culture at a time, I think it turns out I was the normal one.
3: You better just remind people of who you played amongst when you were at Chelsea. So just put that in put that in context. Oh yeah, time for That's us. a
4: great that's a great point because people don't quite know. Um, they had a terrible time. Neely went down to third tier, and I came down along with Kerry Dixon was signed, who became the top goal scorer until some bloke called Lampard came around. I don't know much about him. Yeah, I don't know what happened. He He's quite good. Um, and a guy called uh, David Speedy was playing at his time up front myself. Um, and we're a team that kind of suddenly went from, you know, nowhere nearly third tier to winning that division, getting to the Premier League, and then kind of challenging over like an, an 18 to 12 to 18 month period, which a lot of Chelsea fans who over the last few weeks have been going around talking and... Uh, there are men and women of a certain age who are still a wee bit gobsmacked. And I'll keep on, don't, keep on saying to them, look, don't be. It was a magical time for them. But of course, it's always within the kind of the caveat that I think Chelsea got a wee bit better, you know, over the years after that. But for them, it was a magical time. But for me, it was special, not just for the football, but for everything else that was happening in life at the time. And the joy was, and I suppose this is a big story of both the books, is... In simple terms, you maybe re- read stuff by insiders inside football. Yeah. And that's quite interesting for people that are into it. Well, I'm not, I'm a complete outsider inside football, which gives you a complete different viewpoint of it. So I'm seeing things that they think are normal which I think are very strange indeed. And it was a joy writing it.
3: Well, when you went to Everton, uh, you write that you had a drink problem because you just didn't drink enough. <laughs> I mean, that, that was the problem. You really were considered terribly quirky, weren't um,
4: you? Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with it being quirky or unusual or different or yourself. I mean, maybe within a different group of people, a bunch of students had have been perfectly normal. So you just, you were uplifted from this world and stuck in this other world. Now, I love to underline, I didn't dislike the people within that other world, the football world, I just found them quite odd. And, you know, the strange moments would come where I'd be standing, you know... I mean, I'm sorry if you're having your lunch just now, but (laughs) your dinner or whatever, or just between them for this show or the podcast. But um, I was standing in a shower watching, you know, a six-foot black guy and a six-foot one-inch white guy totally naked, battering lumps out of each other. And I'm thinking... No, I'm sure I'm the normal one here, because this is the kind of madness that would go on. I just left what I thought was a normal life, so you know, yes, quirky, but for me, it all made sense. So
3: you did use, it really made me laugh that you used the word equidistant <laughs> dur- during a match. Once was that in conversation with an official, with another player? No, you were that's, bickering that's, about I mean, something.
4: This is, It's a brilliant comment because it happened all the time. You really have to watch your language when you're playing football. So you know polysyllables are not a good idea generally in certain (laughs) situations. I remember that, and they look at you as if to say, as if you're speaking Greek. Or so. And there was this one time, you know, just about charged down a free kick, and I'm on the edge of the wall, and they've asked me to charge down, which is a bit stupid. Because how how tall are you? Exactly five foot six and a bit weedy. Okay, but but quite quick. So I'm going to get there and of course I've, I'm on an arc of 10 yards and we all know I studied about maths so I, I'm on an arc, referee shouts get back, get back and the, the fans are going mad, there's two minutes to go we're only one goal up, it's really tens and I said no no it's ok, I'm on an arc referee, I'm 10 yards and he shouts again you get back, you're not 10 yards I said I am 10 yards, I'm on an arc I'm, I'm on an arc, we're equidistant and the whole thing just stopped and went ooh equidistant is it? And I thought, oh, I'm not at home here, am I? And it was things like that all the time. If I would bring something in and I would use you know phrases that I would just because I was very into, I've kind of lived my life a wee bit backwards. I was very into sort of Russian and French literature when I was 18, 19. We all go through our Camus phase, what well, mm, lots of oh, young yeah. men do. So yeah. been there. Existentialism, you know. I should have called the book that existentialism my way. But um, <laughs> I kind of come out, you know, come out of that world and then come in and now and again you drop your guard and you'd say the wrong thing. And in the early days, you'd, I wouldn't hide it, but I just wouldn't bring that other world in. Mm. And then after a while, I thought, oh, no, this is great fun. So I would kind of introduce that other world to the players. Um,
3: who, was, who was the most receptive?
4: I, mean, I had, My acolyte, who I kind of trained up, uh, Mr. Lissot, he'd done well, he done okay. Yeah. And he came into Chelsea, he was just a kid at the time, and he was very much an outsider. And this one little chap who walked in uh, and turned out to be an extremely good player, but he was different. Nice little lad from Channel Islands.
3: He read The Guardian, didn't he, famously?
4: Yeah, I gave him that.
3: Oh, did you? (laughs) (laughs) when you went to, I'm sounding like a bit of a nerd myself, actually. But when you went to Tranmere Rovers... Now, I know Tranmere because I'm from Liverpool and they uh-huh. played on a Friday night, yeah. uh, which would allow some fans to then go to either Liverpool or Everton mm-hmm. the following day. And they were managed by a guy called John King, Johnny, yeah, King, Johnny King. King, who um, you do bring to life uh, very much in this book. And he just gave the most extraordinary team talks.
4: But the real joy of, if you're writing any book, I think, is you want good characters... See, if it's a memoir and you're surrounded by good characters, it's brilliant. It's great fun. I mean, I loved, loved writing about these characters. But I think Joanne King was right up there with we one of the ones of you we thinking, ooh, I cannot wait to get to him. Did you
3: keep a diary at the time then?
4: Um, that's a great question. I didn't keep a really strong diary, but what I did is I wrote down his best metaphors. On. Always yeah. badly mixed, right. and um, some of them were just—they they were long, you know, soliloquies. In the end, with these, they would start off and say, "Right, lads, we're on a rocket to the moon, and we're going to get there, but we need some fuel." I mean, remember, this is a team talk. Everyone's mm-hmm. looking completely blank, mm-hmm. and uh, you know we'll, we'll have trouble on the way, and we might hit the rocks when we're in the sea. And I'm going, "I thought we were on a rocket," <laughs> and then he, and then he moves on to the road, and he think, "Wait a minute, I'm lost now." And as, as I said, I've, I've I've read everything from Orwell to Joyce. I still couldn't make head nor tail of Kingy's kind uh, of uh, stuff.
3: This, this is like, I'm in the atmosphere <laughs> of a f- freezing cold Friday night mm. uh, at Prenton Park when your opponents could be, for example, just trying uh, to think.
4: Uh, Stoke, if you like, Stoke, or they could Port yeah. Vale. Or, right. But also we had some really quite blinded nights as well. And that's to talk it down a wee bit because an actual fact, Although now it seems a long way away, that was actually golden era for that team, yeah. and we get well. You really got
3: prem yeah, you? three
4: times, three yeah. times in a row. So, you know, that's something I was proud of those players for because they were all lovely players. But the the real joy of it is just that one step away from the the top level, the elite level. They were more normal, and then they, they were kind of less baggage with them, and they were easier to deal with. And I I kind of loved that. Normality. So I kind of got on a little bit better. But that's one of the things between the two books was, was it them that were coming closer to me or me that was coming slightly closer to them? Um, but it didn't matter either way as long as I was enjoying it.
0: Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com.
1: Moonpig.com
2: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. We're talking today to the former
3: professional footballer, Pat Nevin. Now, he is the first person to admit he owes an enormous amount to his wife, Annabelle, and we'll hear much more about his family life in a moment. But first, I put it to him that sometimes the excesses of men's football are a bit hard to stomach, like the Man City players, after their treble win, getting a private jet to take them to Ibiza for a single night and then they got a private jet back to Manchester for their victory parade. I told Pat I found it a bit OTT and unnecessary and asked him what he made of it.
4: Um, well, the fact that you actually watched it, I didn't. I wouldn't have bothered. It wouldn't right. have even crossed my mind to watch what happened. I watched the game Um I, 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 I turned it on again for the trophy lift and that was it. All the other stuff, everything after it, I mean everything after it has absolutely no interest to in me and never ever has whether it's Manchester City doing a treble or whether it was me playing a cup final. I don't care. What I did care about is the kind of pure love of the game and the actual mm. playing. So the art of the game, the beauty of the game, and I can hear some Times listeners going, what art, beauty in the game? And I would argue strongly that it is there.
3: Well, I mean, Jack Grealish is beautiful to watch yeah. uh, and I suppose he's entitled to a good time. But,
4: but that, it's, it's a different, I mean... you I will not tell people generally how it level at the time, no. you know. But I have my own interest in my own way as I'm looking at it, and I have the thing that I loved about football was the thing that I'm explaining, which which is this joy of the creativity of it. Now, all the other side, which is you know, it's it's just excess. It's just stuff added on top, and of course, it makes me a, an outsider now. People thinking, oh, you possibly an old man, you're past your time. No, no, I always felt this way, and I always acted this way. So I can look back and I can look back with times of watching or meeting Pele or playing against Maradona or watching Messi and all these players mm. and I don't think, well you were a great party goer. No. I think you were a beautiful footballer and that for me is the thing I love about it and I think there are there are people out there who are not necessarily served by that because there's so much time building up it to be something that's, uh, well I feel find really quite superficial, to be honest.
3: Now, while you were living your dream, playing the game and Mm -hmm. moving all over the country as well, your wife, Annabelle, um, who you reference a great deal throughout the book, was a complete stalwart in Mm -hmm. terms of her ability to keep the domestic show on the road. And you really honour her for that, don't you? I mean, you you keep saying, I I couldn't have done this without her.
4: Well, someone said to me, rather, I thought it's really annoying when someone gets your stuff better than you do (laughs) you've written it. And someone said to me recently, your first book was a love letter to your dad and your second one's a love letter to your wife. And it is. Mm. There is a lot of that. I didn't think of it in those terms when I was doing it, but if you're going to be honest about what's important to you at the time, and uh, certainly Annabelle in those years when I was playing, and we had uh, particular difficulties to deal with. And again, that was another reason why I wanted to, to write this because um, my son Simon, he was diagnosed with autism at just over two years of age and of course anyone who's gone through any, any problems or anyone who's not neurotypical, when it first happens when it first hits it's, it's an incredible thing to go through especially as knowledge then was unbelievably limited, yeah. help was just not there and it was a very very lonely and difficult thing to go through but it was harder for Annabelle Loads harder for her, and she had to bear the brunt of a lot of it. Well, I'd go out and work trying to get home as often as humanly possible. Um, And that when I was writing the book, I had to ask Simon about it, um, what he felt about it. And we, we never, it was never hidden, it was just private. There's a very different, very different feeling between those two words and those two feelings. But we we talked about it at a time and thought, no, Simon decides when it's right when it's for him now I don't mind if other people think a different way it just so happens that's the way I feel and I hope that people who write this don't come out thinking Oh, or read this don't come out thinking oh it's a victim thing it's not there's so much joy in the end that we got from Simon but Annabelle had to do all the heavy lifting or the massive amount of the heavy lifting
3: now, your daughter Lucy is a doctor, mm-hmm. and you do you do acknowledge that she's simply cl- cleverer than you, oh, um, yeah. which you you suspected for quite oh, she, some time. Well, she's a
4: woman for a so She's, well, yes, she's a Obviously, um, so, uh,
3: <laughs> But you know, it must be very difficult to be the other child in a frankly in a family setup where one mm. just for the, through no fault of their mm. own they get they require more attention.
4: It's not uncommon, and you find it as you go along working in the world. I mean, I obviously worked with autistic charities all these years, quietly in the background. Um, But you'll often feel a sibling go into the caring industries. It's just something I've had to deal with and live with. It's not uncommon. In fact, it's very, very common. Uh, But I suppose to some degree, Lucy was clever, um, caring human being anyway. And the fact that um, she knew nothing different, it was her big mm. brother at the start, and maybe through those teen years, maybe that's that's for a girl that was difficult, maybe. But she dealt with it with with such beauty, with such kindness, and the two of them, man, they're great with each other. So yeah. that's that's absolutely fine as well. And it was just lovely to give some of those stories. I couldn't get them all, in. there was one particular one. If you don't mind me saying, um, I asked Annabelle to write a chapter, and she wrote a piece for it. Um, anyway, long you know what it's like when you write books you, you have long discussions with um, the publishers so it didn't make it, which disappointed both Annabelle and I um, but we will make sure that that and other stories come in some other form because the journal we went through we just wanted to share with everybody and I was doing a talk just two nights ago and a young man came up and I talked about Simon and what it felt like when we found out and how he's progressed, and so many happy events happened with Simon, as well as the difficulties. He will always live with us, and he is the most, I was going to say important, but the most dramatic effect in our lives is what what Simon has been. And this guy listened to it, and he said, I've just found out last week that my son is autistic, and I don't know where to go. And I said, well, well A, read the book, but B, I'll do some more and just talk and try and get information for people because the one thing I wanted more than anything else then and we needed and we hadn't got was information and people to talk to. So that's why really we're talking about it now and writing about it now.
3: And for anyone who does dismiss football, um, there's a lovely bit in the book where you talk about the community that Simon has found at his club. Yeah. Tell me about that.
4: Well, he has. I mean, the other thing to say is just before we go on to that is the reason, why, another reason why I mention this is because see when you, you have a shout and a ball at you know, these footballers out there, oh yeah they might be on a lot of money, you know, these days um, but they'll be going through things that you don't know, you know, and they are human and it sounds like a really pat thing to say but when I went through it it was really, it was tough um, but people are always nice to me but I always think I'm fair to players not nice or too easy, just fair always fair with players Um but moving on to Simon, who finally discovered Hibernian and Sunshine and Leith and following the um, it's He's found his community, uh, to a degree so have I, with that club, because that's the team that I would follow in Scotland now. Um, but a lot of the prob- difficulties of people who have you know, autistic traits or difficulties, um, difficulties is the wrong word. It's just a different way of looking at things. Uh, they don't find the community or find it hard to find their community. Um and Simon certainly with the high bees and, and going to see gigs as well mm. has found that and nothing or very little in this world makes me happier to see that his happiness within that.
3: And that's fantastic. And I should say that your continued love of music is also a delight because you, every single chapter in this book is named after a song yeah. and you include one of my favourites, which is Rip It Up by Orange Juice, <laughs> yes. which I would argue is the best song of the 1980s. I don't care what anybody else says.
4: No, we're all out on. And the whole idea for the, 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 all the songs relate to each chapter... But there'll be some of them you might not know. And uh, I was deliberately trying to put an earworm in your head so that if you read this, and you either know it or you go and listen to it. Um, and I've always had this love of music and, and certainly the first bit discussions about because John Peel and I became great friends over the years as well. Uh, so all those stories of the love of music and the joy of it and the sharing of it, um, it's just great to have a chance to do it on paper now.
3: That is Pat Nevin, who is, I think you could call him a polymath
1: because he just has a lot of strings to his bow. Hmm. We're still surprised when footballers have intellectual capacity well, aren't we? Well we are and also I think he, he makes the very good point there that in
3: his own home life it probably did seem to a lot of people who would occasionally berate him for his performances on the pitch that he was living a dream life because he was earning a lot of money. He'd be the first to admit that by the standards of most fans he was absolutely earning a lot of money but at home you know he his son has autism and it wasn't always easy for them to navigate his path and help him to get through his his life, and um, they 've had challenges, so I think it 's really interesting it 's also not at all insignificant, as he says that his daughter has become a doctor on the strength of of growing up alongside a sibling with you know with a range of challenges, and apparently that isn 't at all uncommon that the other child in the family or one of the other children in the family unit will pursue one of the caring professions. I think it's interesting.
1: Yeah. And sometimes do you think that we're a bit too unsympathetic uh, to footballers about the demands that they're profession places on their family life oh, yeah, our go-to definitely. place is always one of kind of oh they've got lots of money so it's all right but actually mm. for their wives and family oh, it must be awful the constant weekends and the constant christmases easter is going say completely safe. gone and then you could just get a phone
3: call to say actually you're going you're going to play for Hibern- hibernian we're, we're selling you
1: yes yeah
3: uh and that means you've you're not you're only at the end of the day you're just a
1: bit of meat they can stick in a packet and send off somewhere else. Yeah, and also you really do have to have a think about what happens after the age of 35... Well, it used to be that you'd run a pub, but that's
3: not... I mean, these days, of course, they earn so much money at the top end of the game, that they don't need to worry so much. They could buy the pub. They could buy a whole string of pubs. But, of course, that's not always the solution. It's not, no. No. no.
1: Uh, We should say rest in peace to the world's wonkiest pub, uh, which is uh, outside Birmingham, isn't it? It's in the black country, I believe. Yes, and uh, it's very famous because of the subsidence that meant Mm. uh, you could actually watch a marble roll up the bar, right. because the whole thing had tipped over so much. But uh, after being... Um, they had a, a neighbourhood campaign, didn't they, to try and save, save it. it. Yep. Uh, but it had been bought by a property developer mm-hmm. uh, who was set to develop it, and then it just went up in flames. Went you... up in flames. <laughs> I don't know what you're hinting at, but I think I might know. I'm not hinting at anything. Well, I just think it's very, very sad. It's very sad. It's, and... it's gone up in flames. It's gone up in uh, Did you do... <laughs> did you do Cheers, Ben... Mum was eight, his mum yes, was Yes, i I've 80. done that, Fee. I've wished, I wished the lady a very happy 80th birthday for the 3rd of August. <laughs> Sorry, I was just reading. She through. got double bubble there, said it again. I was reading through some other emails at the time. Uh, we'll save some of the other uh, fantastic taxidermy stories, uh, for tomorrow. Uh, and uh, I just wanted to do why have I put what the actual on this one. It comes from Sharon who says I currently live in New Mexico but I'm originally from Bristol Mm -hmm. and I listen to you when I'm out walking Mm -hmm. Uh, I just listened to the episode where Fee mentioned winning the competition for guessing the number of sweets in a jar and it's made her remember something Jane I think it was the summer of 1976 and we were on holiday in Devon the Daily Mirror used to run a summer competition where you had to spot Chalky White Oh yeah He was at a different beach every day There was a photo of the man's eyes in the paper and you had to approach random men on the beach with the slogan of the day to win 50 quid. Can
3: I say they couldn't do that now, could they? No,
1: and that's why I've written WTAF at the bottom of this. (laughs) I spent that whole day running around the beach approaching strangers with my copy saying, Make my day the chalky way. And eventually I said it to one man and his reply was, Finally, you ran past me four times and I won the money. I also remember that my mum felt bad that I found him when all five kids were running around all day looking and she made me take everyone out to the Wimpy that night for a burger with the winnings. Imagine these days letting your 10-year-old daughter run around all day approaching strangers on the beach. And Sharon also says, is the wimpy burger chain still around?
3: Oh, do you know, it isn't, is it? But I've had a banana split in there and a Knickerbocker Glory. Have you? Yeah,
1: Knickerbocker Glory, do they exist anymore? I'm sure that you can find a, there'll be a vegan restaurant somewhere in Dalston doing a modern Knickerbocker Glory. Oh, no, I don't want a modern. But that, can
3: I say, the exquisite taste combination of whipped cream, banana and vanilla with chocolate sauce with a cherry on top. Unbeatable.
1: Yeah, I'm thinking there's a strawberry lair somewhere. Oh, no, I don't think so. Yeah. I had my 13th birthday party at the Wimpy. Who went? My friends. Yeah, I know. Do you know I'm still in touch with one. And actually, I'd like to wish Susie all the best because she's moving to Mexico. Oh, well, yep. good luck there. Yeah, and we saw each other last week. And actually, it's one of those moments where you think, I've been friends with you since we were eight. Yeah, And we, there isn't anything that we haven't talked about over the last, whatever it is, 45 years. So I wish you well. Susie Maud, uh, right. That's it from us for know, today. Uh, why is she going to Mexico? Is it a job? So no, she's going to uh, to start a new kind of phase of life. How actually. fantastic! Yep, yeah, mm. very much like we did here at London Bridge. Jenny. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
3: broadly <laughs> similar. Right similar. now, Greta Gerwig has apparently made a billion dollars, or is it pounds, at the box office. But what really will count for Greta is whether I enjoy Barbie.
1: <laughs> so I'm going tonight. Okay. Uh, and I promise that we will talk about Greg Wallace's miracle, miracle Meet sometime in maybe 2025. Have a very good evening. Enjoy Barbie. Thank you. Good evening.
3: That'd be so silly.
1: What do you get back?
3: I know, ladies, A lady listener. i
0: sorry. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5.